0: welcome everyone to recollection step a grand archive podcast part of the main deck podcast family i'm dan
1: and i'm taylor Dan, it is. It's a great time to be a fan of Grand Archive right now. Oh, we're man. In, oh,
0: we're in it's been crazy.
1: It's been wild. We're in the midst of, of Alchemical Revolution spoilers. We have multiple major tournaments coming up. There's so much popping off right now.
0: It's, I mean, the big thing I think for us is, I, I mean, obviously, the excitement about Alchemical Revolution. Um, most of the team, a ch- good chunk of the main deck team heading to Ontario was going to be me. But then I had an offer he during that exact same weekend that it, wait, wait, what'd you say? <laughs> he got scared. Yeah, I got scared. I was too afraid. <laughs> I decided, you know what? I, uh, I just, I, I took ninth at Ascent Houston and I think that's the top I'm ever that's going peak. to achieve. That's peaked. peak. So that's, I peaked and I was like, <laughs> let's just leave it there. No, no, I, I absolutely, I wanted to go so badly, but I got an offer. I couldn't refuse. I still can't mm. talk about it, but very soon yep. I'll be able to explain what's going on to other people. And um, we're obviously going to miss you there and i'm going to miss you guys because it sounded like it was going to be a blast. Um oh, the yeah. big thing about Ontario being this like 2 weeks after alchemical revolution releases.
1: Let's go. Which oh. is
0: there's like almost and given how long weebs have been stretching out the spoiler season here too. It's like we're still not sure what's viable and mm-hmm. what's not. Um and we have, and I mean, like, that's actually, you know, that's going to be a really nice segue
1: actually to what we're talking about today, I think. Yes. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about tournament prep, uh, how to get ready for, uh, these big tournaments. And and honestly, this goes for like pretty much any tournament you're going to go to, whether that's a, a larger kind of open, uh, tournament, like Ascent Ontario, a more, um, high stakes tournament, like nationals or worlds, or even, uh, as something as, um, as low-key and uh fun as your 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 locals um these are kind of all things you can can apply to to all of this uh to varying degrees obviously like you don't need to go ham on your locals um with these these tips we're gonna have for you uh, but it's just it's it's always stuff that's nice to keep in the back of your mind
0: yeah i would i mean I would say that obviously for a situation like this with this ascent coming up shortly, having i think a good plan of attack is a really critical because you don't have a lot of time mm-hmm. to kind of like go back and forth and, and think, you know, like just waffle a lot on like what you want to do. And, and you kind of have to approach for the people who want to be competitive. And right. The thing about TCG gaming is like, there's all range of people here where i I guarantee we have listeners to this podcast who are never planning on going to an ascent, you know, they just, they're like, but they just like, they just like the game and they want to play and that's totally rad um mm-hmm. but i think going to a tournament especially um if it's like your first time you're entering into a major tournament there are so many unknowns there's so much to be uncomfortable with and unsure about what and like even down to like what are what are the people going to be like like are they all are like is it going to be <laughs> there's come on there's there's demographics and there's certain stereotypes of people who are at card game tournaments um thankfully you know in a set of houston i don't know i actually i do know what your experience was taylor but i was just gonna just for the formality say i don't know what your experience is like taylor but um but we were there together and we met
1: some of the best people playing Ooh. card games mm-hmm. i did not have one bad interaction with anybody down there it was it was so much fun. Everybody was super nice, super welcoming, super helpful. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously people are there to win, but like nobody's there to like make anybody have a bad time or anything like that, right? Like people are there. they all want to have fun together, compete together, and just you know share in uh how much we enjoy this game so right
0: and and it's going to depend you know, a little bit from game to game. There are some games that I don't have to deal with naming right now where <laughs> the the community is generally thought of to be a little less of that and a little more of, you know, less welcoming stuff. But I, I mean, like the here's a hard like a hard reality is like the larger a game is, it's simply it's a it's a numbers game. The more the higher percentage, not even the higher percentage, sorry, just the higher number, but the percentage is probably about the same of people that are just kind of not cool Mm -hmm. um and actually no you know what i'm gonna back up on that i think i think the percentage is higher um actually because i think often and and i'm using gonna use a bunch of like vague terms here but i think often the people who are generally less cool to to just like are are less about like those type of people are tend to be less about just like really loving this one thing and doing it for the joy of doing it, which is kind of what you're doing when you're in a small TCG. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say there's, there's a higher percentage of people in like magic, Yu-Gi-Oh, um, even Pokemon tournaments. Although I think Pokemon is actually a pretty good community in general too. Mm -hmm. Um, where there are people there that are, they are just there for like, they're grinding or whatever. There's like, you know, I'm just, I'm just here because I'm, I'm good and I want to get money. Um, and you have people who just play the game because it's like, it's, it's the obvious choice because it's huge mm-hmm. and it's the yep. one they support. And you have less of the people who are like going out of their way to go to Texas from like Alaska. We, there, I think there were people from Alaska to San Houston too. Yes, I think um, that's correct. Yep. And uh, just because they're like, well, this is, this is the fun tournament. Like I got to be here. I got to go meet the community. Um, so I actually think the percentage in smaller games tends to be lower of the people who are just there who aren't there because they are, have that personality where they just want to meet the fun people. And they're just there because they're for one other, whatever their reason is. Yes. Right.
1: Um, and so listeners, that all is just a very long way of Dan saying that you should come hang out with us at Ascent Ontario or Ascent <laughs> worlds or wherever, because everybody's there to have a good time. That's that is true. I was I did
0: I did want to say that, and I also wanted to back up to what I was saying, which is that like you're gonna however you approach the tournament, however, however you decide to go to a tournament, there are things out of your control, which is just kind of like what the what it's gonna be like, you know, what the what the mm-hmm. atmosphere is gonna be like and everything. Um, what your matchups are gonna be isn't in your control, but there are things that are in your control. And so if you're looking at going, whether you're looking to going to your first or your fortieth major tournament i think it behooves you to do a little bit of some of the preparation stuff that i think we're going to be talking about today
1: yes uh excellent intro yep that was great thank Um, you yes
0: but you know what i have to do before we can actually get to the meat of it right yes we (laughs) we have to have to mention how you can support main deck if you do enjoy this podcast you enjoy listening to us watching us whatever two ways you can support us that are really helpful of course like comment five-star ratings on your podcast platform. Make sure you're subscribed to the channel. Make sure you follow the podcast on your platform. All that stuff's great. Thank you so much for doing that. Really appreciate it. Helps us out a ton. And then the other thing you can do if you want to financially support main deck without spending any extra money, whenever you're buying your cards on TCG Player, you go into Grand Archive, I go pick up some alchemical revolution singles. Maybe right when they're coming out, you need to get ready for Ontario. You got to get the cards. Somehow you go to TCG player. You just use our affiliate link instead of just, instead of going to the site, just use the affiliate link down in the description below or type bit.ly slash shop TCGs into your, uh, in your little address bar bit.ly slash shop TCGs. And then when you buy your cards, we're going to get a little kickback and we really appreciate that. Cost you nothing extra. So don't forget. bit.ly slash shop tcgs for Alchemical Revolution. (laughs) All right. So, Taylor.
1: Let's jump into it. How
0: how do we do this? How do we prepare for tournaments?
1: All right. Yeah. There's a bunch of different things you can do. Um, The first thing I want to start off with when I'm looking at getting ready for a tournament, though, is trying to figure out what I'm going to be playing against. Uh, Because that's going to determine what I'm going to want to play, right? Uh, I don't want to show up to a tournament with a deck like rye um just rye turbo arcane and get beat down by fire xander after fire xander after fire xander because i'm not going to have a good time and i'm going to lose a lot and there's going to be a lot of very quick matches and they're not going to go in my favor so uh yeah the first thing you want to do is just figure out what's going to be there right um uh and there's Depending on what what game you're looking at, in this case specifically, we've got an excellent resource in Luxera's map. Um, so shout out to everybody maintaining that. Um, posting tournament results from the more recent regional turn or uh major tournaments such as regionals, Ascents, um, I think some store championships are in there as well. And uh um, some online events get posted there too. Yes. Yep, yes, like uh Yeti locals and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Really excellent resource has a bunch of like great good deck lists up there that uh, are are seeing success, um, and so that's where I'm going to go to start out with and, and just figure out what what's actually being played right now. Right, um, there's a little hiccup in that this time around because uh, ALC is going to release two weeks right before Ontario, uh, so who knows what's going to be played. But we can also kind of still assume some of the old decks will be played at Ontario. Um, So you're going to want to go through and figure out what's being played and what's really powerful right now. Um, So just for this, we're probably going to see a good amount of Fire Merlin still. Uh, Fire Merlin is very powerful yet. We're going to see a lot of uh, different variations of Lorraine Ally decks and probably even level three Lorraine decks. Uh, Those have been becoming a little bit more popular lately. And we'll still probably see some Rai too, I would imagine. Um, Those have been kind of all the heavy hitters of the FTC meta so far. I think
0: not to, I mean, this isn't the current meta podcast or whatever. we'll probably talk about that more in two weeks, actually, mm-hmm. um, when we start to get a little more uh, information under our belts. But um, I think I would guess if, uh, and, and I think like, I want to go through this just to kind of go through my reasoning, because maybe it's like helpful for someone to see like stepping through that. But Um, with what we're seeing coming in from ALC, just like the, the types of decks we're seeing, we're seeing like guardian people are, are hot on guardian as an ally, uh, an ally, which I think they should be, um, Mm -hmm. as, as just like an ally focused deck, a lot like the Lorraine decks that were performing well, but able to protect the allies a little better, has some pretty strong card advantage, uh, engines, um, ranger, Decks that are either super aggressive or doing like some kind of like pretty big combo uh kills, like that are look look they feel similar to Rye. Um mm-hmm. in in those combo style ones. I would I, I would guess with seeing some of that stuff coming in, I bet Rye is not a deck you need to prepare for. Um uh, because I think if any player is looking at their so you like thinking about the other players, like okay, why would someone bring Rye to this event? Um, mm-hmm. is kind of the line of 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 logic. I think we're like, well, I think he's gonna struggle against Lorraine and now Guardian, Ton tonorous. I think he's going to have coin flip matches at best against some ranger builds and struggle against other ones. Um and so and and we're talking about like the Rye Deck, the the known Rye deck, the one where mm-hmm. it's just like turbo arcane. Um that that deck doesn't do anything to interact with the board, really, except, like, some builds will play some incendiary fractals, um, but other than doing that, uh, like, t- it, like, some sparkle lights and stuff, but, like, you know, just little, little removal things just to, like, try and cling on a little bit, uh, but I think he's just going to get outpaced, um, whereas I think Lorraine Allies is going to look really good still um especially because Lorraine has cleave access and that's going to give her an edge in uh tonorus matchups um and i think fire merlin like we talked like we've talked about before in the the podcast is just kind of this just this potent mid-range deck mm-hmm. that you can tweak in a number of ways to just like handle kind of whatever you expect um and so i agree with that one totally so like i would really be looking at okay like when i what i want to play i want my deck to beat or at least have a decent enough matchup against Fire Berlin and Lorraine. Mm-hmm. And then whatever I think people are going to play from Elk. Yep.
1: Um, I think too, uh, looking at this as like the beginning of a format, uh, I want to play a deck that is going to end the game. Um, I don't want to sit there and dirtle around. Um, so like Fire is an excellent example of this again, because it has fireball, right? Like that's just gonna end the game in combination with Merlin at some point. If you don't kill Merlin, Merlin will kill you. Um, that's how it works. Um, Wind Merlin, I, I think, is a very strong deck, but it lacks that like I will just end the game at any point factor. There's no card that's like you lose. And that so that deck, I'm a little bit more like hesitant to even want to begin to think about sleeving up for this event. Um, also, that's just a deck that takes a long time to play. It takes a lot of mastery of the deck to, to figure out and, and become really good at. It takes a lot of practice. Like, it's that's a that's a it's a very good deck, but it's very very difficult to play as well. Um, so that's probably another thing I'm looking at, too, is, like, decks that are a little bit easier for me to figure out, easier to, to remember the interactions for, um, stuff that's going to flow a little bit faster, especially for some of these longer tournaments, too. Like, even just getting out of the metagame, um, tournament some of these longer like ontario is going to have eight rounds i think day one which is a full full day of playing that's like eight plus hours easy um you're you're like you're going to be mentally exhausted at the end of the day and so the last thing you want to be doing is like figuring out how to how to bounce certain allies so you can get get in with certain allies for like a chip amount of damage each turn while still surviving and that's just going to overwhelm you
0: yeah and and like just from uh not personal experience but you know we've, we've heard limelight Uh, talking a lot about his experience at Houston, who he managed to top eight. He did incredible playing Mm -hmm. with that win Merlin deck. Um, And he talks in all his podcasts and everything about the, uh, but creative shock, by the way, you should also be sub to them um, about his struggle throughout the day where because he was just playing this grindy deck, he knew that he could win matchups. Um, You know, he knew that if he won game one, he was a pretty good shot of winning the round because he would go to time on mm-hmm. game two. Um, not stalling necessarily, but just because the deck takes that long to find the kill and be mm-hmm. able to get there. And the, you know, that's nice, but the flip side of that is there's two, they're twofold. When he lost game one, it was a grind. He had to actually play really fast for a deck that is notoriously complicated to play um to be able to win a not just one game but then two games in a row or he draws which he Mm -hmm. did a lot um and uh the draw part i mean he drew a lot um and and won his other games um but the other problem is that he was playing the entire time you know like we would finish matches Mm -hmm. we'd finish them and have 5 10 15 20 i i mean i had one where i did the i did the nuts like rending flames combo yep right um mm-hmm. like basically twice in a row effectively and that was like uh i had a lot of time <laughs> to like but like it's like a mental break time it's mm-hmm. like a time where you get to you get to unwind a little bit you get to you get to not be engaged with constantly thinking through play lines and strategy you get to go Find a snack, chat with people,
1: check out um, the vendors. It'll be and California in the winter. You could even take a nice walk outside. and It probably feels pretty good. Uh, probably, unlike, unlike here, where it hurts your skin today, yeah, <laughs> where yep, we live. Exactly. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, it's uh, there's a huge advantage to playing a deck that doesn't have to go the entire time. Even if what if it's, you think this is one of the best decks in the metagame, um, just for your own like you know, it, cause what you're going to do, you're going to start, you're going to start leaking your brain power a little bit as mm-hmm. you go. Um, the more you have to stress yourself, you have to remember, like as much as we want to think of just playing card games, as just kind of like laying back and throwing cards around or whatever. It's a, to a degree, it's an exercise with an organ in your body, right? Or muscle in your, not a muscle, but
1: like, you know, a, your, your brain is working pretty hard. Um, I mean, not even to a degree, like, uh, you know, top chess player, Magnus Carlson has been known to like lose significant calories. Like have a significant calorie deficit from tournament days. Like I feel that is, too. Like yeah. I legitimately, you know, and those
0: on those long events, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm just, I'm like at, by the end of that, I'm like, I'm really hungry and I'm, I've been grinding the whole day and I've gotten to the point, I've talked about this on some other podcasts too, but like, I've gotten to the point in some events where I've had, I've, I've, Taking myself into headaches territory Mm -hmm. just from the the mental exertion um of of playing a card game
1: (laughs) yeah so so bring ibuprofen well yeah that's not a bad (laughs) plan either for sure (laughs) yeah no i mean Um, that's that's not i'm kind of joking but that's actually not a joke
0: no it's (laughs) you'll be you'll be your team savior if you're the one who brought the ibuprofen and someone starts to have a, a bit of a, a struggle, uh, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- all that's just to say that, like, I think you know when you're when you're picking out what kind of deck you want to play, you want to be thinking about what the meta game is like. Think about what beats what, but at the same time, you want to be thinking about what your play
1: experience is, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. And we're moving into like a some some brand new territory here with this new set, doubling the card pool essentially. Uh, not quite, but like pretty close, it's close. more or less. Um, so this is a really good opportunity. To, like as you're preparing for this tournament uh and you're figuring out what you want to play like experiment a lot like you want to throw a lot of card combinations together figure out what works figure out what doesn't um because like that's that's how you're going to find the unknown thing that's going to come in and just like take the tournament by storm um you know you get like that's going to give you a good good read on the format as well you're going to know what card interactions are are important and which ones are at least not very powerful um there's a lot of a lot of new cards coming into the format that that are going to take time to to figure out so you really need to like sit down build some decks figure out what like your favorite build of ranger is what elements you like with it you know same with guardian same with cleric um there's nine just basic uh champion element combinations now you know not including if you're going to go to level three or not go to level three or just like go to level three and only play a few cards or whatever um there's a lot of a lot of new things right now that, that are going to be really important to figure out. Um, so just start start jamming some games uh, with these new sets once once we get some more spoilers out.
0: The the joy of trading card games and also the pain of trading card games is that you have so many viable options. You could, you know, you could you could play decks 24 seven and it would. Well, that'd be a lot. Maybe eventually you'd figure you'd like have kind of played everything more or less, but like, I don't know, not really even too, because like, yeah, like you said, you know, right now with this set, we're going to have seven champions. We're going to have three elements. You have 21 at the base level. That's 21 different, like class element combos, but it doesn't mm-hmm. stop there because you have, like you were saying, you have, you have, are you, are you staying low level? Or are you going to level three? Every champion has two level threes. Merlin's another one that just like throws things out the window. We have lineage braid champions. And now we have, the The dual element champions coming yep. in Alk two.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and then beyond just like which champion levels am I playing, we have things like i the obligatory bringing up triple threat um <laughs> that we have to do here where we we played uh, Merlin and Lorraine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was a uh, the the a similar deck is what then one ascend Auckland yep. um, doing another similar hybrid thing like then you have card choice. Like after all that, after you get through all that, that it's like, okay, now what's the deck doing, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and a lot of card choice passed there. So it's, you have so many, so many options. And I think an important thing I want to bring up is that like card games are very, um, often very group thinky in how they operate, meaning that, um, a lot of people will chat on like the discord or whatever about uh, for the games, discords, you go to the main grad archive discord, you see discourse going on about all sorts of different decks. Um, and a lot of the time people will start to coalesce just because this is what humans do. We'll start mm-hmm. to just coalesce around certain ideas that we can all feel nice and safe and agreeing with, you know, like, well, yeah, fire Lorraine's the best, right? Mm-hmm. Fire right. Number two, you know, uh, water's terrible. Uh, that kind of, you know, it's like, they'll just come up. Those are, those are old takes now. Very different. The, very old many. takes.
1: Very, very dusty takes. They're very <laughs> dusty takes.
0: But you know why they're dusty takes, Taylor? Is because people started to, well, they released a couple proxies, vault cards and stuff. But that helped. That helped. That helped. But people started to explore the metagame deeper. Exactly. And experiment and try new mm-hmm. things. Yep. And we had things like wind allies, ag- aggro coming out. And then we had, and we had water allies and we had, variants of hybrid decks and we had a fire assassin the hot
1: new thing We yes. had that too
0: not not yeah. aggro the the fire like the level one. three the norm,
1: norm one the norm one yeah the it's, norm i mean it's technically fire, fire. But it runs runs eight fire cards yeah
0: yeah yeah quote, mm-hmm. quote unquote fire says but like i'm just like that's that's the point that's exactly. exactly the point i'm making is that like it's an evolving metagame and, and there's two things there's two things to it there's there's combinations of cards that just haven't quite been put together and used there because you think about like the chance if you, if all you're going to do is like roll random dice to find good combinations of cards, it'd take you forever to do that. Exactly. And, and it's actually possibly in some ways faster to do it that way than what people do, which is they, they group think around just, well, this, like when you play Merlin, these are the cards you play. Yeah. And that's not always you know, the the optimal deck for any particular given metagame or anything. Someone who gets experience just kind of throwing there, even if you have a dumb idea, just put it together. Just mm-hmm. put it together and play it. But the key to being successful with that is seeing seeing the merit behind the result.
1: Exactly. Whether it was a good or bad result. Yep. The nuance. Yeah, you, want, you want to go... I mean there is some some amount of results oriented thinking you need to take into consideration like if you're trying something else something new out and you lose to everything it probably isn't going to work out but if like you've got some close matchups in there that you've lost and you know you're the from your experiments and your your testing games you are sitting at like a 40% win rate but you've you've been on the wrong side of like some really razor thin margins you know look at look at what the play patterns are and look at what the strategy is and what you're trying to to compete against and you know maybe you just had some some unlucky games cuz that that is going to happen as well uh you're not always going to draw the nuts you're not always going to you know get to level 3 at a low enough life total to stabilize um you just you, things aren't always going to come together as planned cuz you know that's why it's a trading card game and we've got the randomized decks right like it's you've got to you got to look at at both the results and kind of the process um, and I'm glad you brought up like the, the evolving metagame and the group thing because that's that kind of leads into a little bit too. Like the there's different levels to each of these like metagames, right? Um, you know, the level one of the the DOA metagame uh, first set was pretty much a lot of Lorraine. Uh, we saw a lot of infusion right away, and a lot of InSoul. And then that kind of died down a little bit, and we and Merlin came out. We saw a lot of Merlin, Merlin everywhere. Kind of looked like you know merlin was taking over but there's been plenty of strategies that compete uh, with merlin pretty well um that that you know just show that other things can win um and uh, this meta game has been continually evolving over the course of of ftc and us getting to play over the last few months and yeah we've got finally got some like xander control decks in the meta game now that actually compete really well and it just goes to show like how much time some of this stuff takes to develop There's Um, an
0: important there's an important cycle to all of that that we see frequently with every single card game. Doesn't matter which one is that whenever a new an injection of new cards enters the card pool. The first thing people do is they gravitate towards uh, and this is this is really great because our last podcast was on these archetypes. So if hopefully all our listeners are all like caught up on this, but everyone Mm -hmm. gravitates towards aggro decks initially um, because they have fast numbers. They win games. They're straightforward. They just you're just like, I'm just going to put numbers on the board and I'm going to make you deal with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And typically these have a number of different flavors and some of them are better than others. And usually what happens if you look on more like a macro scale, it's just that some of the aggro decks eat the other ones up. It's just that like, well, this one's just like it does the same kind of thing, but it's faster because aggro decks tend to be just fairly they're, they're like we said, there's you have one thing you're doing, you're just trying to reduce the opponent to zero in a in a the most
1: efficient way possible. Exactly. And I mean, you want to talk about having a way to win the game, you're, you're just like, I'm trying to win the game right now, like, yep. I, want it, I want it to be over. Yep, yeah, exactly. And
0: then what typically beats aggro are the mid range decks who who can who can push a little bit of damage back, but they also, can control the board. They can they can just generate value and just kind of like mm-hmm. you know in Grand Archive we think about the decks like Merlin, like we said that that will just uh eat up some of the key threats early on. Sometimes heal a little bit extra damage that was taken. Get to get to the later game and then just straight just get more advantage than you can and then mm-hmm. you know win the game off the back of that. Um, and then typically, what comes in after those, what tends to be popular in the next sort of the next step up, is that the mid-range decks have have sort of taken over for the aggro decks, dealing with those. And then the control decks come in, and they go, okay, well you want to see endgame value, well here it is, um, and they'll just outvalue the value decks, uh, and then the aggro decks can crop up again a little bit because they mm-hmm. can go faster than the control. So you see that that cycle crops up, but the cycle crops up usually in a very particular order. Um, And typically it starts with like at at Ascent Ontario, I'm expecting aggro decks, tons Mm -hmm. of them. And I'm expecting the mid-range decks who are doing what we're saying, which is just, okay, these are the good aggro decks. I'm going to try to beat those. Um, And I expect few control decks because, specifically because early in a metagame, Control control is so to for control to get to the end of a game they need to we talked about this in the last episode but you need to know exactly what you're dealing with mm-hmm. and when a meta game is as unknown as an early meta game is you're gonna be playing cards that are less efficient or like just you can imagine just like a lower percentage of the time they're the useful cards to have yep. um, meaning that you're just gonna hemorrhage matchups because you weren't playing the right tech
1: but as a meta game gets discovered that tech becomes more clear yeah so and that effect is kind of like doubled in this case too because grand archive is so new and and so i think so few tcg players in general have a lot of experience playing with a resource system where you're 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 playing cards from hand or using cards from hand to play cards from hand as well uh and can really just like you can get yourself into a corner where you just you think you've answered some things but now you don't have any cards in hand anymore because you've had to spend too many resources and well okay your control deck is not controlling anything anymore because you can't play anything um, so it's. I think it's actually going to be pretty dangerous, to, really extremely dangerous to bring any sort of control deck at all to, to Ontario.
0: I would say like, especially since we were, we were leading some of our our uh, advice early on to someone who's like new to going to a major tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually meant to mention this earlier too, but like your comfort zone is also a really nice place yeah. to exist in. Um, you do not have to attend Ascent or Nationals or Worlds or whatever um with the thing that you think is a good meta deck because a lot of the time if that's a deck you're unfamiliar with you're uncomfortable with you're actually just going to perform worse um Mm -hmm. than the deck you're comfy with so you know maybe 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 we have the casual player out there who's like yeah i've been playing fire norm xander for at my locals for like the whole time and you know, I just never went higher with it, but it dominates, and I'm just going to go take this to ascent and control the heck out of everybody. If you do that, go, like, good on you. But yeah. a lot of the time, I think if you have a nice little like aggroish mid range deck that you're comfortable with, just take that. Oh, yeah. You'll
1: have fun too. There, I mean, at Houston, there were Water Merlin decks that that did pretty well, uh, multiple top 32, um, which was it was definitely a rogue deck, but those players had been playing watermelon for quite a while. And they were very comfortable with the deck and they knew the matchups and and they saw success from it. Like it's, yeah, you can definitely bring a a deck that is kind of off meta to one of these regional or these larger tournaments and then do well when you, when you know what you're doing and you've got the reps in and you, you're comfortable with it.
0: Knowing what you're doing, um, you know, that's like, obviously a really hard thing to quantify, uh, necessarily, a harsher because,
1: statement than what I wanted to make. I'm like when you're more so just comfortable with the deck, like you're you're familiar with the interactions and the matchups, and you've you're like it's what you play, so it's you 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 know it. You're getting towards what I was I was I was actually doing a really cool
0: segue, but oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the knowing what you're doing is really often comes down to like whether or not you know if you're good. It would depend on how good the players you're playing against, whatever. So it's tough to tell that. But one thing you can do is just be really cognizant of the minutia of kind of how your deck works mm. um, and how interactions in the game work in general. So the next section, I think we wanted to really talk about here was just the concept that I think is really, really important in grand archive actually like more so than some other games um, is knowing how the minutia of rules and interactions work, especially with more common cards. Mm. Um if again, it goes back to like, if you know what the metagame is, you should, I Taylor said something that was really, I want to say it again, because it's really just an important thing to hammer in, but like you should know both sides of the matchups you're going to be playing. And sometimes that comes down to like the opponent might be playing a card and you know, that's in the list, but you maybe haven't played against that matchup or like this weird circumstance hasn't come up before. And then they, they pull it on you and then they like pull out the card and it does something and it feels like it's interacting differently than you expected. That was something you could have prepared for if you knew that matchup a little bit better and Mm -hmm. you then maybe could have played around that happening. Um, so knowing how those interactions work is really critical and I thought it'd be fun to just, well, you thought it'd
1: be fun to just go over some of these specific ones. Yes. Yeah. Um, the first one in general is just kind of like, uh, well, we'll talk about the elephant in the room first, actually. Um, This is just a good PSA for everybody in the first place. uh, Nullifying Lantern and Fracturize and the way those two cards interact. Um, It's just kind of an awkward interaction where uh, Nullifying Lantern is a regalia that uh, comes out, just sits on the field, and it says cards in Graveyards are norm element. And then Fracturize is a water card that turns an item or a weapon into a Fantasia with Reservable, and it loses all other abilities. so if you, you try, decide to use Fracturize on a Nullifying Lantern, um, your first probably thought is that, okay, cool. Well, now cards and graveyards are whatever element they normally are. I've got this cool new Fantasia I can use to pay for reserve costs, and life is good, and I'm going to go Rending Flames somebody. And <laughs> unfortunately, you'll play your Rending Flames, and you'll try to banish three Fire cards from your graveyard to, to to pay for its effect, and... Turns out those aren't actually fire cards still. Um, There's this weird like rule interaction with layers, um, which kind of define how exactly stats and abilities on cards are um, determined. And like, Dan, you're a lot better at explaining Uh, this than I am, because you've you've had a lot of uh, experience (laughs) with this.
0: So um, but just before I get into the specifics of that, I find this is a really... This and and a number of other interactions are really tricky things to explain to people who are newer to the game because they really feel like I'm just good. I'm making stuff up entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to preface the whole conversation with, I promise there's a reason. There is like legitimately a good reason why everything that we're about to explain in some of these interactions is the way that it is.
1: Um, And I mean... Grand Archive has like a comprehensive rules document and it's, it's comprehensive. Like there's it, they've gone through and, and figured out pretty much every situation, how, how things should work out through attacking and, and activating cards and resolving cards off the stack. And all of this is kind of just a result of, of that document and those rules being comprehensive, like actually trying to cover everything single, single scenario. And the reason that document is the way that it is, is because Grand Archive,
0: um, in no non-obvious way, actually Uh, in a pretty obvious way is took a lot of its inspiration from magic. The gathering Um, not in its direct rules necessarily. I mean, there's some things that are like you play dudes and they can attack and stuff like there's a few similarities there, but you know, name a card game that doesn't do that. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are a few, but not a lot. Um, But what grand archive really did was it, it, it took that, like, you know, that, it took some of that basic structure and then not only that, it they went and they they basically reached out to Magic and they're like, What did Magic do correct? You know, like what are the good things? What are the parts of that system that make that the uh enduring system that it is? And and one thing that's important in magic is that it has a comprehensive rules guide that provides consistent, clear interaction advice for how it, not advice, but like just structure for how everything in the game works. Um Basically it's just sitting at one point in Magic's history the the at one point in Magic's history it was more of a wild west and then at some point the the designers developers were like we can't just keep going on like this because it doesn't it's not actually good for a game to exist with rules that keep contradicting each other every set or two um with because we just throw some random words on and like well how does this work now and I I could say this from experience from judging other card games some of them don't do that and mm-hmm. they are, and they are just an absolute. Like some rulings, literally, just come down to, well, it works that way because the head judge at this tournament said it did.
1: Mm-hmm. And you'll have you'll have East Coast rulings that are different than West Coast rulings, and there's no way to reconcile that.
0: Right? Yeah. Like like legit, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 it becomes a gang war at that point. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um but the 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 thing that magic did is they set up this comprehensive rule structure. and now what when you know when you dive into these rules now, you, like you don't read this document to learn how to play the game at all no, no. Mm-hmm. because it goes into such insane depth on things where like it's you read it and you go, why would anyone ever need to know how to do this or why would you ever care like what, how this works? But then you come up with an interaction like nullifying lantern fractureize, and you're like, oh well, It's a really good thing that that's all written out that way um, Mm -hmm. because that explains that really weird interaction. And the reason I I think this is just kind of an interesting side note. The reason I think these come up uh, a number of times already in grand archive, despite how new it is, is because grand archive in its design, I don't think pulls any punches either. It's grand archive. The best way I can put it is grand archive is designed as if it's magic's 60th set or whatever. Um, You know, it's the same level of like just putting effects out there that are that are like that to the same level as how like a deep card game would have to design Mm -hmm. um meaning that you just like we're already getting some kind of complex interactions and um i i think people have different takes on on how they feel about that i personally like it quite a bit because i i already feel in this game there's just an insane amount of of depth of strategy and everything because of that Mm um so anyway back to Nullifying yes. lantern fracturize. The the what um what nullifying lantern fracturize is is is, is it's a situation called layering. Um layering is a, a part of the comprehensive rules that describes basically how uh how effects that change objects in the game should work. Um and that sounds like it should be something obvious, but the problem is that you have to imagine hypotheticals. It, it, it effectively comes down to like a hypothetical chicken and the egg problem. So the easiest example I, I have to give is if you have a card that says, let's, let's say we're in our card, we have card types X and Y. X is a card type, Y is a card type. Regalia, uh, Fantasia, or, you know, ally and champion, it doesn't matter. Say there's two different card types, X and Y. You have a card type that's, a card of card type X that says, all card type Y lose all abilities. And then you also have a card in play that is a card type Y that says all card type X lose all abilities. Right. And if we don't have a comprehensive rule structure and those two cards are in play, the question is what happens? Um, it's a chicken and egg problem then. It's like, well, X is shut down by Y, so then Y doesn't get shut down by X. And you can just kind of like, and then X doesn't get, yeah. So like you just go back and forth, right? And, it and then your judge in Orlando says one thing and your judge in LA says another thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it, exactly. Um, so what layering does, it, it, the reason layering exists as comprehensive as it is, is because there are potential for effects like that, where you really need to be able to just step down this chain and go, okay, layering just says the first thing we apply when we're looking at anything that changes this, the characteristics of anything on the board is step one is and it has a list of things i don't have it in front of me and i'm also not going to read through the list of things (laughs) that is but it's in the comprehensive rules which i will link in the description here you can go look it up yourself but basically there's like layer one is these types of characteristic changing effects happen layer two is these types layer three is these types layer four is these types and you just apply the layers in sequence um you say okay the first thing that happens any effect that would change this thing happens okay then any effect that changes this happens so Nullifying Lantern and Fracturize is a situation of two different layers applying. Nullifying Lantern is an effect that changes the uh, the element characteristic of particular cards in a particular location. Nullifying Lantern changes car- all cards and graveyards to be norm elements, so it's a characteristic setting effect. Fracturize is an effect that removes abilities from an object. So it's changing that object's characteristics by saying it doesn't have abilities and it's this card type and it has this ability, just no other ones. Um, It's a Fantasia with Reservable. So Fracturize's ability applies at a layer to uh, remove all abilities and then Nullifying Lantern's ability applies... Uh has sorry' reverse this nullifying lantern's ability has already already applies to the board, and then the characteristic setting effect of fracturize applies on top of that so effectively nullifying lantern's ability is already in effect, and then when it gets fracturized it you know it loses all abilities, but that one already is active, so it can't it can't lose it again
1: yes yeah, so um thank you for sitting with us through that. Very technical <laughs> description. Yes. Um, well, but yeah. Long story short is that unfortunately, nullifying lantern will still be active once it's fracturized. Um, but yeah, I mean, just you can really get into a lot of minutia with some of these rules, um, and really, you know, start start using your brain in probably ways you didn't want to. So another uh, thing that's really important is attacking. That's um, generally how you're going to win the game in Grand Archive is attacking with units to deal those point of damages to your to your opponent's champion. Uh, so the combat phase is important to be aware of as well and kind of the weird nuances there um, so there are a few interactions that we want to go over here um, and we'll start by just kind of laying out how combat works so um, whenever you declare an attack you're starting a combat phase and that combat phase has three different steps uh, it has attacking and start of combat it has retaliation and then it has the damage step um, and opportunities presented throughout that as well as things happen. So kind of what happens is um, your unit will declare an attack. And so that starts combat. Um, you have to declare towards a target. You're going to be in the start of combat step at that point now. Uh, once you know, the target is declared, players will receive opportunity uh, and, and things will trigger. Like if you have intercept, for example, that's actually a triggered ability that gets triggered when uh, an attack is declared at your champion. So that'll go on the stack. Uh, and the controller of that can decide to, to redirect the, the target. Um, once targets are declared and players have passed opportunity, you move on to the retaliation step. And um, then the defending player, the defending units have to decide whether to retaliate or, to the attacker or not. Once they've decided to retaliate or not, they, both players again receive opportunity. And then you move to the damage step where the damage is actually dealt. Um, and then combat closes. Um, so there's some weird things you can kind of do here with uh, with Intercept, uh, with Retaliation and and saving your attackers while still dealing damage back. And also kind of like taunting is, is another thing we'll get into here too, but a lot of it just involves giving allies stealth. Um, one of the main ways to do that, or the most popular ways for some of these examples is with Smoke Bombs, which is a Regalia that just pops, gives a, a target unit stealth. Uh, target ally stealth, actually, and then you draw a card. But um so there's kind of some some ways you can kind of manipulate how your attacks go through. Um so let's say your opponent has like two block, or two units out and they've got both have intercept. When you declare an attack, both of those triggers are going to pop and your opponent's going to have to decide which order they want to put those triggers on the stack. And then at that point, uh they can only really declare one of those as an interceptor. Um, so once uh once that first unit has been, or once that first trigger resolves, if that, if your opponent has decided to choose that unit as a new target, that other trigger will fizzle, because the attack's no longer targeting a champion. Um, So let's say you want to actually, like, your unit's got two interceptors. One is, like, uh, the Majestic Spirit, which is a big dude, which has four power, will probably kill the attacker on, on Retaliate, or it's, like, uh, some other small guy, like a Library Witch. Which is just a zero two. Uh, let's say you want to attack the library witch because you want to get it off the field, for whatever reason, and you don't want your attacker to die to retaliation. You're going to let your opponent order those those intercept triggers, and they'll probably order the uh, w- such that either well either way it doesn't really matter. If they put um, one on top of the other or the other way, you can give the um, the majestic spirit stealth with your smoke bombs. In order to ensure that you either hit uh library witch or the champion, depending on which they choose to do.
0: Well, in, in that situation, you could just attack the library witch.
1: Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yes. Um, what's a better interceptor? Maybe they have I don't know. Um, well, I think uh, I, I I think again, the point just, of this
0: is, is also just showing that combat is inherently, you know, a complicated thing in Grand It's very archive. tricky. Um, I think the, the example really that you want to just be aware of the thing that happened competitively a lot was just like when, when there's a single interceptor in play, um, is where this comes up the most. It's usually something like the majestic spirit, um, and the majestic spirit, you don't often want blocking your things. You really want it to, in fact, not block anything for the turn. Um, you, you have the ability to give the majestic spirit stealth and you can do that. I mean, the thing that that Taylor's trying to say is that you actually can do that after the intercept is declared if you want to, if you want to wait to the last possible moment because the intercept is a trigger. Uh, it's That's an important thing that is a really big distinction in this game compared to other games that people might be used to. For example, in like Magic the Gathering, you have a declare blocker step and everything is the ability to block and it's it can't actually be like responded to before a block is declared. Like once you get to the declare blocker step in Magic, you declare a blocker, the block is declared and now we can go about trying to play anything. Um, but in grand archive intercept combats, just doesn't work that way in grand archive combats its own. It creates its own step with its own functionality that Taylor went through the details of earlier. So the way intercept works in this is not like a special step. It's just, there's a spot during combat where intercept triggers it's when an, the, the attack is declared against a champion specifically. Um, and in that case, then you know, if you have that Majestic Spirit in play, the trigger will go on the stack and you can just go ahead and say, in response, I'm going to pop Smoke Bombs, I'm going to target your Majestic Spirit and give it stealth. And what will happen in that scenario is that the Majestic Spirit will have stealth. Your attacker presumably doesn't have True Sight because this doesn't work if your attacker has True Sight. Um, the Then the Intercept Trigger will attempt to resolve. The Intercept Trigger will say, that attack now is going to target my majestic spirit. However, because your majestic spirit has stealth and the attacker does not have true sight, it is an invalid illegal target. Um, thus the intercept trigger will simply fizzle and resolve with not resolved. It'll have no effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is that type of interaction is something that you want to be aware of uh,
1: for sure. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's all just a, a, a really long walk for a very short drink of water <laughs> to say that intercept is a, is a triggered ability. It's not actually part of the, uh, any specific combat stuff.
0: You know, I think I, it may have been a long walk, but I, you know, I do, I have to think that there's some value toward to just going into sort of the, the nuances of how that work, because what we explain right now is a very, like, it's a very, we could have just said, yeah, you can smoke bombs, the interceptor. Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't explain what happens when in set four, or set five, there's this card that does something wacky when you play it with intercepts on the stack uh, or, you know, some other portion of combat. Right. So I think mm-hmm. I think there's value. And like I think that's the key part of this. This whole conversation is like you're going to pick up some of these little tricks. Just try just w- listening to this podcast, watching mm-hmm. other people play games, talking to other people about the game. You'll pick up more and more little tricks that will piece together kind of all the little things you can do but one of the best things you can do to really be competitively savvy is just to really understand um you know that 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 whole section of combat for example how about retaliation taylor do you want to talk about that step
1: yes yeah so uh in retaliation um happens after attacks are declared targets are declared intercept triggers have resolved so if you know you've intercepted or whatever that's happened now you go to retaliation you rest your unit to decide to the defending unit to deal damage back to the attacker. Um, and then in the damage step, those both those units are going to deal their power to each other in damage. Um, so normally that's, you know, you just you bash units into each other. It's awesome. Um, again, there's a neat interaction with stealth here where once you get to the retaliation step and you've declared your defending unit as a retaliator, uh, you can actually give your unit stealth, the defending unit stealth, and then once you move to the damage step, uh, that damage has already been declared as retaliation damage. So that attacker will still take damage, but because that unit has stealth, it's actually uh, removed from combat. It's no longer a defending unit in combat anymore. Um, so the attacker doesn't have anything to damage in the damage step because it's not there. Um, so it's a neat little interaction of, of being able to actually kind of counter an attack somehow uh, with stealth. That, I mean, again, that's also assuming
0: that the attacker has, does not have True Sight. I just want to keep exactly. making that really clear yes, because that part
1: is very important.
0: True yes. Sight negates all that. Uh, and another similar interaction that True Sight doesn't negate, though, is um, being able to uh, use an effect like Displace um, on your unit. Displace will uh, suppress the unit and yep. it'll return rested. Um, so you can actually do the same intercept trick That we talked about earlier, which is you can you can displace uh an interceptor to uh well while the intercept trigger is on the stack, right? Mm -hmm. Um and that will allow you to cause that no redirection to happen because the interceptor will be gone. Normally, and I think like the same thing we said before, like normally you could just do that you know, especially with display since it, re- it returns rested, you can do that in response, but, um, and it's also important because we have a card coming in called Rose eternal Paragon. And she is going to be creating some interesting situations. Uh, I'm going to pull yes. her up right now. In fact, I just want to make sure <laughs> we're talking. We're we have the exact text in front of us. All right. So Rose, is uh again from alchemical revolution rose is a four cost uh two three wind unique ally guardian warrior automaton with intercept and true sight and fast activation when you have class bonus and then here's the thing i want to talk about which is this on enter ability so on enter you may change the target of an attack to rose if you do rose gets plus one health until end of turn so rose is going to be kind of interesting Uh, because with either of the, the blinking triggers, it's not going to work very well. So the, the idea is that Rose will come in on enter. You can change the target. Let's say there's a lethal attack coming at you at, at you and you play Rose to redirect that attack to Rose instead. Um, if you were to actually just play her beforehand and then try to intercept the attack, your opponent might have something like a Zephyr or a Displace, uh, to deal with that intercept trigger while it's on the stack. However, if you play it um, after the intercept step, uh, then you can have that attack go to Rose. But then, if your opponent has a smoke bombs or some way of giving stealth to Rose, in that case, then Rose Rose will attempt then to resolve the on-enter trigger, attempt to change the target of the attack to Rose, but it it is not a legal target anymore. Mm -hmm. So once again, it'll fizzle.
1: And actually, I think um, you can't actually even respond to an attack with Rose and get the intercept trigger because that by the time mm-hmm. you have opportunity, the, the the window for that trigger to to actually get put on the stack has passed.
0: Yes, I apologize. I, I misspoke in my head. I was thinking, you know, if you it, earlier in the turn, if you see that attack, but that's very good clarification because yeah, yeah, once the attack is declared, is when the intercept trigger goes on the stack. So there is no zone in between declaring mm-hmm. the attack and triggering the interceptor. There's no window of opportunity where you can play a fast speed interceptor like that. Uh, Again, combat
1: combat is hard. There's a lot going on here.
0: (laughs) And, and honestly, I'm not going to be too shocked if there's something, some nuance, some, something we misspoke in here Mm -hmm. that we, that we didn't say correctly either, because it's, it's, I think one thing too, that I've accepted about this game uh, early on is that I'm constantly learning new interactions and I just try to take it in stride. I just go, you know what? That's cool. Like that's neat that that works that way. I'm going to make sure I do that differently from now on. Yep. Um, and so feel free, please comment below. If, if you feel like we either misrepresented something or just blatantly said something incorrect here so we can correct the audience in the next, next episode, we'll issue a, a full formal apology with the bowing and everything and uh, exactly yeah make sure you understand
1: that we we did not mean to get it wrong yeah we're we're not trying to misrepresent anything here at all we just you know we're humans as well so we might get some of this stuff wrong yes um but one other thing neat thing you can do with rose too is um she can enter in the retaliation step and change the target with her on enter as well so after the original target of the attack has decided to retaliate Rose can come in and instead take the damage for that attacker, while still having the original attack come in. If you have, you know, that might be relevant if you have like a high power but low health ally that you want to save, but still get that attack that retaliation damage in. Yeah, there's there like there's roses. There's a lot going on with Rose. I, I think I think the more that we've I've looked
0: at and thought about Rose, the more I've really liked this card. The biggest issue is the cost is just high, like four is a lot. It means you have to keep a five card hand up to play it. But then Taylor, I, I, but right before we pod, did this podcast, I looked at you playing a game with a wind guardian where you, it was turn three or something and you had nine cards in hand and yes. six <laughs> allies on board. So I was Sometimes like, well, it's not, that's not too bad.
1: <laughs> you know, you might be able to play Rose.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and Rose is just seems to have so much flexibility and so many interesting plays. And I guarantee like, we still haven't, you know we haven't plumbed the depths of Ro- rose's wild interactions there's going to
1: be some some more that i think we learn as we keep going too. yep um quick aside there's one last fun interaction we we like but before we get to it um i just want to say uh as getting ready for this tournament don't be afraid to call a judge um mm. and and get clarification on some of this stuff like this if you're in the middle of a combat step and, and things are getting confusing and there's lots, lots of stuff going on, feel free to call a judge over. It's not like an attack on your opponent or anything like that. They're, they're there to help make sure everybody's playing correctly, right? They, they're not there to punish anybody. Um, so like they'll help walk walk through how these steps are resolving. They're, they obviously aren't going to be able to help you play the game or give you advice or anything like that, but they'll make sure everything resolves in the correct order.
0: Yeah, and sometimes, you know, one thing that's tricky about talking to judges, 100%, you should always do that because the judges are going to be trying to help you, but um, you you do have to word your questions in a way that's conducive to you getting the help you need. Um, so just being um, explicit with the judge about what you're asking about uh, is the more detailed, like don't feel bad sounding like a doofus, just being like, if I play this thing, At this phase, and this effect resolves. Targeting this, does this attack? Does this attack go? Will this attack go through when the when the attack sequence resolves? Will it deal damage to like just like say every single word you can think of? We saw this happen in Houston where uh, players under stress can ask questions that are not. you know, a judge has trouble answering questions when they start to sound like strategic advice, like, and so you have just have to be really explicit, like about the, the exact sequence you're trying to suss out. Like, how does this resolve? What happens if this happens during this situation? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually your best bet at just getting kind of the, the objective. Yes, this is what would happen. This thing would take this damage. Um, and then you can make
1: your play accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Judges uh, so, are there to they're there to help out. Yes. Uh, well, with the, the rules of the game, not strategic. They're advice. they're here to they're here
0: to help you win your game strategically, <laughs> <by> <laughs> providing advice to you. Cool. Um boy, I could I could use that sometimes. Um, yeah. so the last interaction we want to talk about, this one would probably gonna be a lot more simple than the other ones, but it's an interesting mm-hmm. one that's come up just because it's come up really recently. Yes. Um, that is Song of Frost. And Song of Frost, I want to say, like, I, when I was doing my FTC, like, top five videos, I put Song of Frost on the list, but not for this reason. Uh, and I've since learned this interaction. And, uh, I mean, I think actually, when I, during that video, I, I, I hinted at it, but I didn't get to, like, the depth of the strength of this interaction, like, the true top-level mm-hmm. play of this. So Song of Frost uh, is an action that will um, effectively, uh, when something's being attacked, you can use it to end the combat step. Um, remove the uh, remove the uh, attack from from combat. Basically, um, I didn't pull up the exact card text in front of me, but I will have it up here on the screen. You can read it. It effectively says that. Um, the the but the important part is that is, is kind of what happens when you are ending the combat step. Okay, uh, because it actually has some reminder text on it that says exactly what happens when you end the combat step. Anything that is currently resolving, anything in intent is going to go away not going to resolve um so the normally what happens is your opponent activates we'll just bring it up again because we've said it a million times your opponent activates rending flames right and they're like they banish or any attack but um they activate something like rending flames and they banish their fire cards and they're like i'm gonna do 14 damage to you and you song of frost and you go no you're not and just ends the combat and then the rending flames goes away and um all the cards are all banished and everything, and that's great. Uh, there are more interesting things that you can do with Song of Frost, though. And the one that uh, I'm going to start with the the more simple one that has caught some people off guard, but isn't like the really cool one, which is that. Uh, and we've seen this in some like Merlin matchups, but something will happen where like Merlin, a, a careless I, I will say not necessarily a careless Merlin player, but a Merlin player who's just unaware of the specifics, how this interaction works. Um, And by that, I mean like me prior to learning (laughs) everything um, will maybe do something like they'll go, they'll go for like an attack of some kind using Merlin's buff and maybe it's a lethal attack um, or something. And the opponent will go, Oh, you know, like resolute stand or whatever. And they'll go, okay, then in response, I'll fireball you. Okay. And that's where they screwed up. Because now the opponent can go, oh, cool. Song of Frost, end the combat step. The Fireball does not resolve because it it was it was currently resolving and it's going to go away with everything else when the combat step ends. Um, and in that way, that Song of Frost actually just countered Fireball. Um, and that's really cool. It's really cool that you can do that. And if you, by the way, that's just a reminder now, if your opponent's playing Water don't play important spells during combat unless it's important to do so mm-hmm. um because they will use song of frost to just you know counter them effectively but the, the what what really got me excited was when i learned about this play which is where um you will actually attack with a unit um let's say you have several units to attack with and you're going for lethal that turn you attack with your first unit and your opponent goes In response, the attack sequence, I'm going to cast Resolute Stand. And in that case, you as the water player can go, oh, cool. I will Song of Frost my own attack to end the combat step and then negate that Resolute Stand entirely. Which means then now your opponent might just be completely out of interaction and then you can attack with everything else you have and get through all that damage. Uh when I learned about that play with Song of Frost that's when I was like oh okay yeah like this is mm-hmm. this is the the real spice it's not just a defensive card it's actually an offensive card too. Yes.
1: Yep. So if you run into any water tamer lists especially and they only have one card left in hand and they've got floating memory in your graveyard be careful with your resolute stands. Probably play those before combat. Yeah, you have to you have to be a little more
0: careful. You have to like resolute stand um you, I mean like because of how, how because of how opportunity works um, your opponent if they're savvy the very first action they'll do on their main phase is declaring their first attack um, and, and force you to force your hand on playing that resolute stand so you actually would have to do something like at the start of the recollection phase or something mm-hmm. yep. you'd have to play your resolute stand then which is fine because like if your opponent has the damage on board like they're not going to not attack you that turn so it shouldn't be a big deal but like starting to play things outside of combat against water is a key
1: like level up moment Mm -hmm. definitely yes um yeah and those are i mean there's so many other interactions Uh, a lot of it a lot of your tournament prep is just gonna be going and figuring out which ones are the relevant ones to your deck as well um that kind of gets into like our last topic here for tournament prep is just practice like get the reps in with your deck and and play against people and figure out how it works and become comfortable with it um the last thing you want to do is be on like the thursday or friday before a big tournament and you decide to switch decks and it, you, you know all your friends are saying this is the best deck in the in the room but if you don't know how to play it it's it's not going to be the best deck if you're missing key interactions that you you know key key um counters counterplays that your opponent have you're going to have a really, really rough time. So definitely make sure you get those reps in.
0: That was, I mean, we had personal experience with that because a few of us had at Houston had settled on the Merlin triple threat deck mm-hmm. and the whole team came on board, but most of the team came on board in the last couple of days. Yep. Um, and, you know, it might've been a different story if some of them had listened to me from <laughs> from the start. All right, check the ego down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, we 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 actually like it was a really this is a really applicable set of advice because it it's what it, you know, to some degree um and I'm sure we could have done it more efficiently, but it's to some degree what we were doing before mm-hmm. Houston, we had a lot of just like several of us just having sort of like meet and play days where we yes we would just bring you know like here's some here's some decks we expect to see in the meta here's the the current iteration of wind lorraine fire rye all that kind of stuff and we'd just be like jamming different decks and um i had that triple thread deck around like basically the whole time Mm -hmm. um but we kept we tried a bunch of other things too we were like okay what does this work how does this work and i remember it was that last like saturday where we met together where We sat down and we had, we, we built out like I, I lugged my entire collection in. Yes. Yeah. I brought exactly. Yep. Our LGS. And we just sat everything down and like, okay, we can build any decks we need to. We started playing against the decks people brought. We put together some more decks and tried all those. And it was getting towards like, you know, maybe the, the three quarters way through the day. I was like, we just played after playing everything. It was just like, nothing is winning. Like this triple threat deck. This deck is the one that's winning the games. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember, like, we had two simultaneous games going on against, like, Wind, Wind Lorraine decks. Yep. And with the version I was playing, I was like, I just, I, ha- I literally haven't lost a game against it yet. <laughs> I just can't, yes. like... Um, and that turned out, that was one of our really good matchups to play, yep, and definitely. I was
1: fortunate to get it a few times. Yes. Yeah, I was really excited to, like, try and get Water Merlin working. Um, There's, like, some of the aggro matchups I was having trouble with that day, especially in that that that's kind of what i like came around to on like triple threat and thankfully i came around early enough to like learn how to play the deck and really get some some reps in i spent like probably the last half of that day just like playing triple threat uh and and figuring out how it worked and and getting getting the practice i needed to actually play it competently um but yeah i mean if you can get uh like a group of people together in a room and just jam a bunch of games with a bunch of known lists that are are known players in the metagame um so think things from like map. that you you probably want to update for alc somehow and you know as you see fit you know there's some of them are going to have some good updates there but get some of those get some of the lists you're considering for ontario or whatever your next tournament is and just jam those into each other with with your group of people with your play testers and 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 figure out what what actually works and what doesn't and, and what the good matchups are and what the bad matchups are because that's going to determine like what you cards you want in your sideboard or if there's any tech cards you want to include in the main deck too um Then just it's you're gonna get like so much more experience this way. Like you can feel a lot more comfortable with not just your deck, but the format in general too. Like you're you're not gonna run into decks that are completely unknown and just take you by surprise. And and really just like you're you know you don't want to freeze in that situation when you're like okay what do I do here? Never seen this before.
0: Yeah, and and like even the person you know obviously usually in the situation someone has to get stuck playing the other side of the matchup, um, or you end up with our our like Thursday at. Texas day of testing or whatever. I think it was Thursday or Thursday Thursday or Friday, whatever we're all, we're all jammed in the hotel room and there were just four, like four mirror matches of Mm -hmm. triple threat Merlin against triple threat Merlin going on across, across spread across like two beds and the floor and a table because, (laughs) because everyone just needed to understand the lines and the math and the deck. So like no one Mm -hmm. wanted to sit down at that point and play any of the other like meta decks because, then someone was missing out on experience. But like, if you start doing that earlier, that's, it's really advantageous because the Mm -hmm. people who actually get to play the other side of the matchup, um, not only get to see how that deck works so they can kind of understand what the opponent's thinking, but they get to spot. This is, I think really important. They get to spot the weaknesses in the Mm -hmm. deck that you think is good. And they, they can try and identify opportunities where they're like, well, because you're playing this thing, you know, I'm able to do this and, and that, you know, I don't really care about that too much. They'll, they'll have a good feel for like what scares them and what doesn't. And then you can use that to actually better the deck that you think is going to be best. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that was great. I'm I'm glad we were able to get, there was a few of us actually that had played it a bit before that. And so we were able to take that other side of the matchup for, uh, for everybody else learning the deck too, and get, get really valuable experience there. Yeah. Um, um, the other thing you really need to, to practice on is just knowing your deck's capabilities and you're, you're going to get that through reps, but just kind of know what your win conditions are and know how you can dig to them. Um, they like, you have a lot of options on every turn of grand archive, just because you, you have a card of, or a hand of seven cards and you can play pretty much any one of those cards, you know, from, from turn one. Right. Um, so there's going to be, there's gonna be spots where you're going to get into a situation where you, you need to dig for your win. Um, and you don't necessarily know, like, you, you might not know exactly what that looks like right now, but you know what it doesn't look like right now. Um, let's say you're like a Rye player, right? And there's a board of, of, uh, four allies standing you down and you've already taken 16 damage. Um, well, you're probably going to have to find either a win condition, you know, get some, some, um, some damage spells, some fireballs, or you're gonna have to find like your board wipe and anger, the skies. Right. And. If you've only got a few cards in hand already, it probably means trying to figure out how to dig through Angerless guys, uh, dig for Angerless guys, and we're going to see some more opportunities pop up here with, um, especially like cleric. Cleric's going to have so many options, like having three different effects on these herbs, uh, just give you a ton of a ton of play. Trying to figure out, you know, do I draw with our asana with them? Do I pop one to like s- filter cards to the bottom of my deck and draw a new card? Do I need to recover? Or like, do I are these levels important? Um, it's really important to figure out what what do, which parts of these uh which of these options are important when and in which scenarios.
0: Yeah. Um just I, I can't stress like the thing we mentioned earlier, just like being comfortable with your deck is the best thing you can do. The easiest way to do that, obviously, just play reps. But you know, I think I think too. If you're looking, if you really are looking to make the competitive leap, you can totally go to Ascent with a comfy deck and just have fun and jam games and and who cares, you know, who cares what happens. And you'll have a blast because Ascent's an, an incredible experience. But if you're really looking to be competitive, um, the best thing you can start to do is really start to, uh, I don't want to say like overthink everything, but... I, I, what, I, what I think you should do is pause more often to really think through, like, is this, is this just what I always do or is this the correct thing to do? Um, mm. The Don't obvious scenarios pilot. are where there's, there's lethal math to be done. Uh, there's like, uh, if you do this one particular line, it actually achieves enough damage to be lethal, but it's kind of a weird niche line. Um, the players who are winning, you know, the way I like to think about the players who win tournaments aren't necessarily the players who are just like on this upper echelon and like, you can't even touch them. What typically happens actually is a lot of the players who are performing well in a tournament are performing well because there are one or two games that you played during that tournament that you could have won, but you didn't. And they actually just won those games instead. Right. And Mm -hmm. then like, you know, it's not obviously like they won your games, but that's what I mean. Like just, they win a couple more games than the other players, which puts them on a higher seed puts them in a better, better matchups and then, you know, catapults them a yep. little bit um, in, into victory. So you're really, you know, I guess I, I want to try and get to the end of this podcast on a really um, optimistic, uh, maybe, maybe if I can inspiring note, which is that um, anyone really can start to be competitive at TCGs. Um, and the wall isn't as great as it feels like it is right away. The wall between you and the really good players is often really scalable, but you just need to, you need to have the right ladder, you know, mm-hmm. to, to get over it when the, your ladder is entirely your mindset, um, yes. your mindset about how you approach matchups, uh, how you prepare for the tournament and how you react during a game to what happens, um, you know, and, and some of that mindset too is, if you're the type of player who likes to say that, well, I've just lost cause he drew the right card or she, she just got lucky. And you know, that's why, that's why I lost. Um, that isn't a conducive mindset to being a competitive player. It might be true sometimes. Like I'm not saying you're wrong <laughs> necessarily. Um, but the, the, one of the quotes in, in TCG competitive TCG writing or whatever that always stuck with me is the concept of making your own luck. Okay. The, the idea that you luck isn't just something that happens to you and thus you win the game. It's, uh, unless you're playing Yu-Gi-Oh, but (laughs) I'm just, I'm kidding. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. i i I had to, but I'm, I'm kidding. Um, Yu-Gi-Oh is actually an extremely competitive game too, but it, it has had formats that are, that are really, uh, random dependent but um but what happens with luck actually is that usually both players are getting different different levels of luck at different parts of the game and the player who wins is the one who you controlled everything they could to put them into a situation where the right card came up and at the right time or the right thing happened and that caused them to then enter a little cascade that won them the game Mm -hmm. um so luck's gonna happen bad and good luck is gonna happen to every single player at every single point um and it's kind of I'm gonna say it's kind of reductive to just to go into a game and say yeah I just you know he got lucky or I just I didn't draw the right stuff yeah I'm not saying again I'm not saying it doesn't happen but Mm -hmm. um It happens to everybody and the ones who win are the ones who are controlling their game plan
1: to capitalize on it exactly you see people consistently making the top eight of events um we're already seeing it in grand archive and it's not because those players are just luckier than everybody else it's because they put the work in um and it just goes to show that if you put the work in and you practice and you practice well um you can also be successful like this is not it, you're not inherently worse or better than anybody here it's a lot of it has to do with preparation and, and how we've gone through and actually worked on 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 how well we know our decks and our matchups and our our mental fortitude and uh, all everything dan just said um so uh thank you listeners I, that has been the recollection step for this week i hope you can come out of this um more ready to to get ready for whatever your next big event is um or you know not get ready however you want to get ready by the way if you're just going to have fun like have fun like there's all kinds of sorts of things you can do Um, but we'll be back in two weeks coincidentally on uh january 26th which is also the the release of Alchemical Revolution. So uh, we'll be back to celebrate that release and talk about a lot of our our favorite cards and kind of upcoming strategies and and, uh, uh, decks and just art from that set just whatever like it it's, it's very cool. so I, you've so, heard it here so first it's it.
0: actually just going to be an art podcast we're just going to talk about the art the whole time
1: yep uh, and it will only be on uh podcast feeds the youtube feed's just gonna be black as we <laughs> describe the art so. okay we're letting taylor's <laughs> trolling take over too much now. i'm actually i've been
0: surprised in this podcast taylor at the at the the restraint you've shown in making trolling comments the whole time <laughs> it's
1: it's been a lot of work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've put in the
1: work to, to make sure I'm not trolling, if you will. Oh, nice, nice. Um, bring it, bring it around. Love it. Exactly. But yeah, again, thank you, listeners. We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, you know, good luck in all your your tournaments coming up. See ya.